Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. If you were to ask 20,000 people around the world to tell you the one thing they wanted most from their workplace leaders today, what one answer do you think would rise to the top? More recognition and appreciation? Personal coaching and direction? Opportunities to grow and learn? Well, Georgetown University Business School professor Christine Porath performed this exercise and discovered that the answer is actually none of the above. What the lion's share of workers across the globe want most from their leaders and organizations today is respect. Now, in my mind, this conclusion doesn't really reflect very well on the state of our workplace cultures today, and it implies that in the course of running our organizations and pursuing our goals, that we've collectively allowed incivility to take hold. And incivility, as we're about to discuss, has both a direct and negative impact on the bottom line, not to mention being particularly harmful to human well-being. According to Dr. Porath's research, when people experience incivility at work, it demotivates them. 66% of workers she studied cut back their work efforts. 80% of them lost time to worry and concern about the incivility, and 12% of them, they found new jobs. So the antidote to all of this, of course, is restoring civility. And I'm thrilled to say that Christine Porath is joining us on the podcast to share research that proves civility actually lifts people and inspires higher performance. Now, there's a chance you might already be familiar with Dr. Porath as her recent TED Talk, Why Being Nice to Your Coworkers is Good for Business, has been watched nearly one million times. And she's also the author of the award-winning book, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace. So if your dream is to elevate your team's performance from good to great, upping the ante on how people interact with one another might just be the way you get there. So we're about to do a deep dive into the reasons why so many people feel respect is missing in their workplace and the surprisingly simple things that you can do as a leader to change it. She joins us from Los Angeles, California, where she continues to teach at the University of Southern California. A warm welcome to you to the Lead from the Heart podcast, Christine Porath. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, I'm thrilled you're here. And for starters, congratulations on the success of your TED Talk. The last time I looked at it, you were getting close to 900,000 views. So you're on your way to over a million. And in your talk, you mentioned that you had experienced a lot of incivility in your first job after college, and that this experience influenced you to really change your life, go to grad school, specifically research the effects of this. So please start off by telling us about this. It sounds like you ended up with a calling. Yeah. So thank you for the congrats. And (laughs) it was a bit of a calling the way it happened. I really thought I had scored my dream job after college, pairing a passion for sports and having played college sports with a degree in economics. And I had a really great internship experience with the largest sports management marketing firm in the world. But when I took a full-time job and followed my boss down to start uh, job in a subsidiary of theirs, what I failed to realize was it was really toxic work environment there. And it was just uh, an eye opener for me to see how people could be treated with such rudeness and incivility on a daily basis, and really how it took its toll on people, both in the workplace, but also how people took it home with them. And I just felt like we were kind of missing the boat in the sense of overlooking how these small 
small interactions really affect people deeply and really cost the bottom line and the organization's reputation. And so it really set me on a path to try to document and show in as objective a way as possible what are the costs of incivility or, you know, negative interactions at work and what are the potential benefits of creating workplaces where people thrive. Well, we're going to dig into all that and I've got some, I have many questions to ask you and hoping (laughs) we can get through all of them. But I want to ask one that really just sort of popped into my head, which is why do we think this is normal? So I don't know how long ago it was that you were fresh out of college starting your first job, but this isn't something new and it doesn't seem like it's really getting better. Although obviously this is what you're advocating for, but let's start there. Why do we think this is normal in a workplace? Well, I think, unfortunately, it's become more of a norm outside of the workplace. I mean, I think we see this everywhere. Over the last two decades, it has been on the rise in workplaces, at least according to our data. And so, you know, I think the first thing is stress. I mean, that's the number one reason why people claim that they're uncivil. You know, granted, we all slip up. And so when we've surveyed people about, you know, why is it that you may be rude on occasion that over 60% claim that they're just stressed, you know, they're overwhelmed or they don't have time to be nice. I think a disheartening number, about half, claim that they feel like they might be taken advantage of if they're, you know, nice or civil at work. And so that's something that I'm really trying to dispel. But I think a lot of it is added on to the fact that there's technology today. So people always feel on. That may lead to feelings of stress or overwhelmed. I think technology also makes it tougher to connect well, particularly in a more diverse workplace. You know, whether it's we respond to emails differently depending on culture or I just think it's gotten a little bit tougher to get it right in the sense of people feeling respected at work. You know, you have more virtual workers. And again, I think that civility becomes a little messier over email and things like that, where you don't have the nonverbals or the tone to try to interpret things. So those are just a few of the reasons why. But as you pointed out, I I do think a big reason is also just we see it everywhere. And so our norms may be shifting as well, you know, whether that's because of things like reality TV or we see this in the media all the time. (laughs) We see a lot of it over social media as far as rude comments or trolling. And so I think that in general, we're just, you know, picking up on this much more often than ever before. Well, the one area you haven't mentioned is government. So, (laughs) right. I mean, in our daily lives, we're seeing extraordinary displays and, you know, there's no pointing fingers. It's happening everywhere. And so it's kind of distressing to me, obviously, that, you know, you said that we have so much stress in our lives that we don't have time to be nice. Like that's a, yeah. a an acceptable answer. So we'll dig into that. And the other thing that kind of really, I want to run a hit really hard here in the course of our conversation is just this notion that civility is a weakness, you know, that being kind, you're going to be taken advantage of. And particularly in the business setting, which is the focus for what we're talking about has anybody ever come up to you during the course of, you know, particularly your education when you're getting your doctorate and you told them what you were working on? They were like, what? Like civility? <laughs> like that, that matters? I mean, did you yeah. ever get that? Uh, a little bit. I mean, 
over the last, I'd say, 15 years, it's become a lot easier to have the conversations with managers and organizations. Like, it doesn't require me selling it to them at all. I think they kind of get it. And I think most leaders see it as, okay, it matters. And it may be the difference between moving from good to great. Like, that's a good framework, I think, that people find acceptable, you know, as far I as... I love what that frame. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that way people don't feel bad like they have a particular problem because, you know, we all mess up from time to time. And also probably most departments or organizations are harboring people <laughs> that, you know, are can be fairly toxic from time to time. And so, you know, how do we kind of pitch this in a way that's palatable to others where we feel like, okay, we can buy into this and try to all strive to improve, you know, just to become more consistent, if nothing else. Well, that's very, very cool. And I think that that's language that most people in business understand. But I also yeah. think, you know, we can impute through the success of your TED Talk that, you know, that this is resonating with people, you know, and that they want to hear that a return to more civility is actually going to have an upside. So let's talk about that. I mean, you really talk about incivility as doing an enormous amount of harm to organizations, but also to people. And so tell us about some of the research you've done, which proves both of these. Yeah, well, I think what I've tried to show is, for starters, how costly the negative side is. So incivility can be. And so the fact that, for example, two-thirds of people are less motivated after experiencing this, 80% lose time worrying about it after it happens, 12% left the workplace because of one particular incident of this, but often don't report it. And then conducted a lot of experiments, not only with people that experience incivility, which show that, yes, they do absolutely function a lot worse in various types of cognitive performance after experiencing it, but probably more problematic is all the people that are pulled off track, whether they witness it or they hear about it, and how it hijacks their cognitive performance, about 25%, how they produce about 40% fewer ideas, so they're less creative and innovative. Witnesses are three times less likely to be helpful to anyone <laughs> after this. So it really affects so many business outcomes that we care about. And that doesn't, you know, touch the health costs that we could get into around this, you know, around stress and things like that, or the legal costs, you know, nowadays that people might file, whether it's related to things like bullying, harassment, or just disrespect, you know, things like exclusion. So it really, unfortunately, touches so many bottom line outcomes that really cost the organization a lot of money. So I'm kind of sensing that what you're saying is part of the math around this is that people hold a grudge. Yes. In other words, they retain a memory, a cellular memory of how they were treated with incivility. And as a result, it's like, well, I'm going to reciprocate in just as bad of a way. Is that what happens? Yeah. So over about 89% of people get even, even yeah. witnesses. <laughs> it's about 96%, you know, if you have the same or, you know, power basically. But yeah, almost everyone gets even in some way. The catch, as you mentioned, is a lot of it comes in passive aggressive ways. And a lot of it comes way down the road where, especially because most of the time, about two thirds of 
the time, incivility stems from people with greater power. So we may not speak up against our boss in the moment, especially publicly, but, you know, we may withhold information, we may tarnish his or her reputation, we may get even in a lot of different ways, especially over time, you know, not put in as much effort, things like that. Well, it sounds like there's karma involved here. So if you're going to be in civil, it's going to come back to you almost instantly, apparently. So that's one way for people to be persuaded that this is something that needs to be eradicated. But you used this language, greater power, just a second ago. And having spent a good portion of my life in senior leadership roles in large financial institutions, and if any of them are listening in, I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, but I will say that the more senior I grew, the more Machiavellian people became and even the less civil. Yeah. Uh, is that a power thing? Is that is that part of what happens here? Or in other words, you would think that a CEO or, you know, an executive vice president, somebody in the C-suite would be thinking, I'm sort of emblematic of the culture here. And so I'm not going to be that person. And instead, I saw it repeatedly. Yeah. Is that a consistent experience? It does seem to play out that way. I mean, we've done some studies really recently where it's like the chicken and the egg. You know, we're Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what happens with that. But the one thing that we found consistently in both research in the field with like large consulting firm, for example, and then experiments is that civility does not pay in terms of giving you more power. Jeff Pfeffer talks a lot about, you know, how if you are uncivil, let's say in the C-suite or with a lot of power and get away with it, it makes you more powerful (laughs) or seems that way. What we're finding is that whether or not you have a leadership position, if you're seen as uncivil, people don't rate you nearly as powerful. So you're losing out on that idea of appearing more leader-like or having more power. And so what we're really finding is that by being civil, you attract, you know, at least ratings of power and status, you know, and that may be the, I'd rather work for him or her, you know, I'd rather follow him or her, I like him or her more, things like that. But We're trying to dispel the notion, I mean, if possible, that by being uncivil, you appear more powerful. And fortunately, that's what we found. Well, you know, to Jeffrey Peffer's insight, I think that part of the association of someone who's in civil, who's in a senior level position, is that their power comes from leveraging fear. You know, we're afraid Mm -hmm. of interacting with them. We're afraid of what they're going to do to us if, you know, if we blow it on some level. And so we're on pins and needles. That kind of creates a it's power, but it's it's a very harmful kind of power. Yeah. And I think the other thing that we want to keep in mind is, is it short term or long term power? (laughs) You know, like like in the moment you can yell at someone and you may get someone to do something because of fear. But over the long term, as you pointed out, is payback going to come and in what form, (laughs) you know, and that tends to, I think, overweigh any short term, small effect that you may get in the moment of getting someone to do something. The other thing that's problematic about using, whether it's incivility or rudeness is fear and in getting someone to do something is um, what we've found is it really hijacks your focus and attention. So like black box recordings, for example, of conversations of pilots, you know, screaming at each other, what have you, it doesn't shake them into, okay, I can 
do what I need to to operate and save the plane. You know, unfortunately, what tends to happen is, you know, people crumble a little bit or it takes us off track such that we don't react as well as we might otherwise if it was a, you know, kind of civil message, if you will. So I think that there's a little bit of a misnomer in the sense of the fact that we take the same message in. Because what we found in experiments is, you know, it just really hijacks attention. Working memory actually operates about 18% slower. So it's very difficult for even witnesses to pay Mm -hmm. attention in the moment if you're, you know, being yelled at or you feel like you're being belittled, (laughs) something like that. Well, we had um, David Dotlick on from Corn Ferry a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that he said, coincidentally, that confirms everything you're speaking about is that inevitably what takes CEOs down, what kills their careers and have, actually has them fired most consistently is this volatility, lack of civility with other people. Ultimately, boards or the company itself just says, we've had enough of this. So this is clearly a behavior that you're going to want to curtail, but it seems like most people that get away with it get away with it on sort of a a medium level, right? Yeah, I love that example. And the research that I'd like to point people to is a friend and mentor of mine, Morgan McCall, and his colleague, Michael Lombardo, at the time, they were working for the Center for Creative Leadership. And over decades, they studied, you know, why do executives kind of derail? <laughs> and the number one reason was an insensitive, abrasive, or bullying style. And the number three reason was aloofness or arrogance. And I think, you know, kind of both of those things tie into what we're talking about. And so, you know, I think it's important if you're in a leadership position or you want to be a leader that you're paying attention to how you're perceived by others. Great advice. Christine, perhaps what I found the most stunning finding from all your research, and it really is stunning, is that workers around the globe today say that being treated with respect now ranks higher in importance to them than getting recognition, being given opportunities to grow performance coaching, you know, any kind of feedback that could enhance their careers. What they're looking for is respect, which is consistently in my mind been something that you would think is just comes with being in a normal workplace, right? So would you call incivility a crisis tied to these findings? And can you tell us how the data was compiled so the conclusion really sinks in? I will tell you that I tweeted this out Mm -hmm. probably three or four (laughs) days ago, just that stat that people are looking more for recognition. And it's been liked or retweeted a couple thousand times. And Uh people reached out to me and said, how was this done? And I think they're just really looking for clear confirmation. So I said, well, she's coming on the podcast, so I'm going to ask her the question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I have links to short pieces in HBR that I've done on it. So I'm happy to send those just on my website that gives kind of a broader piece of this. But basically, had the opportunity to collect data from over 20,000 people with Harvard Business Review and Tony Schwartz. We had a survey and included in this was a big piece on leader behaviors. And what I was curious about was what were the leader behaviors that had the largest effect on the several outcomes that we were focusing on? The outcomes being focus, health, stress, retention, and engagement. And by far, the kind of looking across those outcomes, what mattered most was whether people felt respected by their leader. And that kind of trumped the other things, which are certainly important, but respect had a larger effect on those range of outcomes than things like recognition and appreciation, providing useful feedback, even opportunities for learning and growth. And 
although I was, you know, a little bit surprised, although I obviously think it's an important topic, when I've shared these findings, you know, in various executive forums, I don't think people are shocked. I mean, you know, I may set them up for (laughs) the finding by trying to sell them on it, but I think that we all know at kind of a deep level, we want to feel valued or respected. And when we don't, you know, I think it really takes a toll on people, particularly on these work outcomes. Well, just to probe on behalf of my Twitter friends, was this all industries, all ages? Yes. So that was all the data combined. So this was across industries. So there were, you know, 17 plus industries. People sat at anywhere in the hierarchy, you know, along the way. Of course, we control for all these things, but yes, is the short answer. I mean, it was a sample that was predominantly white collar, you know, managerial type employees, mainly because of the nature the bulk of the data came in through the Harvard Business Review site. So, you know, I think it's colored a little bit by white collar professional employees for the most part, but is, I think, an interesting (laughs) finding nonetheless. Well, that's a bit of a paradox, though, you know, stick my neck out and say that you would think that with people who have greater education, that they would know more instinctively that civility is a more powerful way of influencing people and getting along with people than perhaps somebody that worked in a blue collar environment that might not have as much exposure to, you know, it's sort of a rough and tumble kind of a world sometimes in manufacturing plants and so forth. So it's kind of an upside down phenomenon as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I have kind of collected data in blue-collar and white-collar settings, professional, non-professional settings. And, you know, I think it matters across various settings. And in fact, when we've, you know, studied related things like thriving at work, we found very similar but slightly stronger effects in blue-collar, you know, manufacturing-type settings, for example, or physical plants, things like that. So, yeah, whatever the gist of this is, sadly, I think all too many people can relate to this Mm -hmm. across industries and settings and no one's kind of safe. Like a question that I often get is like, well, what's the worst industry? And everyone seems to think there's by far is the worst. And, you know, I think that that's really hard to pinpoint. You know, I can tell you certainly Wall Street and the financial firms, I think that's the norms tend to be a little tougher there. I think the entertainment industry in LA and other places, you know, and that was prior to the Weinstein press and so forth, but had a reputation around being tough. I think healthcare is really Mm -hmm. tough Mm -hmm. given some of the power and status differences. And one of the big things that is just my hypothesis is if there are larger power and status differences in your organization or in your industry, I think that this you know, civility can be worse in a sense, mainly because people can get away with it a little bit easier. Well, just to pin it down here, it seems like incivility is, we just sort of accept it as being the norm. You see yourself as sort of an advocate, a pipe piper for the idea that it shouldn't be the norm and that we really ought to take a good hard look at how we reinvent our cultures to sort of 
you know, not tolerate this as much? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's where I see my role. I'm hopefully being armed with some data, trying to pitch it in as convincing a way possible to kind of motivate and inspire people to think differently about how they treat others. You know, there are some great role models out there. So that's not to say everyone needs to improve, rather just the idea that we try to become a little bit more consistent, particularly those that are leading others. Although we know that, you know, peers can influence each other too. And sadly, incivility is contagious. You know, it's like a virus and it can spread quickly. The good news on this all is that we're finding in recent studies that civility spreads too. So, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you're kind to me and I pass that forward in my social network, you know, at work and probably beyond work. Well, along these lines, you indicated in, in your research that Cisco, technology firm, kind of took this finding to heart, the idea that people are really weighing respect as being more important to them at work. And they took this to heart and they managed to estimate that incivility was costing their company $12 million a year, which is a phenomenal amount of money. And I guess it struck me as being sort of remarkable that any company would do the math around this. But then I was thinking, well, how did they do the math? How did they quantify a $12 million cost for incivility? And then what did they do about it? Yeah, so this was over a decade ago, actually. And uh, so they took just three of our outcomes, basically, out of one of our survey studies to about 800 people. And they tried to estimate using revenue per employee per hour, how much it was costing them. So for example, they cared about lost work time worrying about the incident and future interactions. They took weakened sense of commitment at Cisco and they took the turnover number, like the number of people that would actually change jobs. And they used the data to project expenses by annualizing revenue per employee. And this led to an estimate of lost productivity value. And they were honestly quite conservative about it because they are a best place to work. (laughs) And so they didn't think it touched many people. And yet adding in these estimates for the cost of weekend commitment, job changes, and lost productivity, it topped over $12 million. And this is just a starting point for them. Like they didn't include, you know, witnesses, they didn't include any secondary costs, you know, healthcare costs, legal costs, any of that. And I can tell you more recently, hospitals I've known, in fact, there's a very small hospital, regional hospital that just worked with their CFO and their financial team, and they estimated conservatively it's costing them $30 million a year. So it adds up quickly, uh, particularly the turnover estimate. Yeah. You know, if you're losing 12%, we know that that's one of the largest costs, you know, human capital costs. And so that's a big one, but certainly that there are a lot of others. And again, these hospitals, anywhere from 30 to 100 million, I've seen them estimate things, really puts it in perspective. And there's a kind of a cheat sheet in a book I did with Chris Pearson on. Cisco's tabulating this, but it really comes down to the numbers that we found in a survey. And just the catch is to estimate revenue per hour per employee. And so all of this is estimates, of course, but that's what you're trying to get at is just the bottom line impact. And then hopefully creating changes because you see the upside of investing just a little bit in your efforts, you know? Well, I think their estimate or your estimate that they applied in their modeling was the 
due to incivility, 12% of their workforce ends up quitting. Did I understand that correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's a phenomenal number, right? Yeah. So if incivility is rampant in your organization, you've got a big cost there. So just in listening, you described this, the methodology is a reasonable attempt, right? And in your yeah. estimation, it's actually low. But what did they do then? And interestingly, this aligns to what you said at the beginning about this good to great mentality, because this is a consistently great place to work, has been for many, many years. And nevertheless, they're saying, if we could weed this out, we can elevate you know, our profits by another $12 million minimally. So what did they do in that organization that we can learn from? Like, what were the practices? Yeah, well, the biggest thing that they did initially was they used to have a workplace aggression and violence program, but they realized that, you know, it was the best place to work. That didn't happen often. And they realized that, you know, when it did get to that point, it often started from incivility. (laughs) So they actually shifted it. They had the first, to my knowledge, global workplace civility program. And I know they did a lot of marketing on the web and so forth, a lot of education around this. And I think trained me managers for what to look for and how to handle this and hold people accountable when it did happen. The small hospital that I mentioned recently has invested in training employees. They're just beginning a program on peer feedback with doctors and and staff members. I think that's going to be great. You can imagine that it's like a mini 360, but Mm -hmm. really around their six standards of respect, which they're focused on. And I think that's going to be extremely helpful along the lines of Marshall Goldsmith and others that talk about just trying to get feedback or honing in on blind spots and then working to improve even just one at a time. And I think, you know, especially around industries like that, where people may lack self-awareness, physicians may have been trained one way, and now they're being asked to, you know, show a lot more respect or, you know, talk to residents differently. And nurses. Yeah, exactly. So I think so much of this comes down to, I believe now, a lack of self-awareness. We don't necessarily come at it with bad intentions. It's just that we may be perceived as disrespectful in some way. And so trying to get that information, whether it's through peers or 360 or soliciting feedback from others or working with coaches, I think are really great ways to try to tap into how do we improve and move forward. Do you think and are you recommending to companies that have self-identified that they have a civility issue that they amend their cultural values to sort of include whether it's civility, kindness, respect, any of those kinds of values? Are you pushing that? Yes, probably the biggest thing I'm pushing from the get-go. Because I think early on, whether whatever you want to call it, code of civility, principles of civility, standards of respect, the whole idea, I think, is the idea that you treat people with respect. And so trying to emphasize that and kind of stole this idea, having read about Coach K of the Mm -hmm. Blue Devils and something that he did when he started coaching the U.S. Olympic basketball team, which is he sat them down before they ever hit the court and essentially said, who do you want to be? And he said, you know, I think we should always look each other in the eye and always tell each other the truth. And then Jason Kidd spoke up and said, you know, we should always respect each other and we should always be on time. By the end of like a half an hour meeting, they had 15 kind of norms for how they were going to show up and treat each other. And Coach K said it was the best coaching experience he had at that point. 
And so I thought, well, how can we do this in organizations? And so it for the first time I did it was at a law firm, Brian Cave, in uh, it was their office in Irvine, California. And the partner and I, after a civility kind of training, if you will, we broke them into groups, very mixed groups as far as position and so forth. And they brainstormed norms that they wanted to live by. And they voted on them, you know, with colored post-its afterwards. And essentially, they decided on 10. And Stuart had them engraved in the input in their front lobby. And they reinforced them in a lot of ways. And But in a year and a half later, they won Best Place to Work in Orange County. And, you know, that was fairly unique for a law firm. <laughs> and yeah. Stuart Price attributes it to their code of civility. There was a newspaper article written about this. But the I've seen it work really well. And whether or not you engage and empower your employees in the process, because you could do this, as you can imagine, at the team level, department level, organization level. I've also seen the principles handed down to people. Like I've worked with the architects of the Capitol and they have a real mix of professional and non-professional blue collar workers, they have janitors, gardeners, and others. And all have received training or awareness around civility because they're working on a civility campaign this year, but they have 10 principles and they're focusing on one each month and they have them on their name badge and they have them plastered everywhere. But I think kind of owning these principles or norms, it really gets people to focus on holding others accountable for them too. So it was pretty fun because one of the last times I was back there for a session, you know, I had a, a person tell me within their team, like they just call each other out, like seven, dude, seven, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or five, man, five. And so it, it becomes a little bit of a peer coaching situation where, you know, you don't expect that you're having to issue formal reports or you're waiting for the boss to hear about it and to act on it, that really we become helpful to each other in holding ourselves accountable for, you know, just kind of standards of respect that we would all hopefully want to be treated with. And so I think that that works really well and could be done without a lot of resources kind of anywhere. Have you seen examples of organizations going through this effort and then it's, you know, on the walls, but pretty much not acted anywhere. In other words, it's all very an insincere act. Yeah, I'm sure it happens. I've seen it work well so far, but part of our next effort is to collect data on how are we doing and what should we adjust mm-hmm. to make sure that we're investing well and, and what do we need to tweak to change that. So it's early, I guess I would say. I've seen it work really well some places and I think we don't have enough empirical studies on it yet to say exactly how it works best. But I think one of the things that people, I hear people, especially in healthcare, asking for are things that groups can kind of reinforce and I don't want to say patrol, but kind of hold each other accountable for because it's really hard. You know, I mean, in so many work situations now, you don't have a leader or a boss that's always going to be physically present there to kind of be tracking all this stuff. And so it's helpful if we can help each other out on this front. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really wise. I know at Google, that they sort of have created brand ambassadors, if you will, so that if you've been in the organization for a while, then you are 
sort of asked to point out when somebody's behavior isn't googly, you know, it's yeah. not it's not aligned to the values and they do it in a very polite way, but it's like, hey man, that that's just not the way we do it here and that's a very cool way of making people feel connected to it, but also yeah. sort of deputizing a lot of people to feel like it's their job to keep up their culture. I love that. I also love that you mentioned Mike Krzyzewski at yeah. Duke. He's a very much a heart guy. I think, you know, his book was Coach from the Heart or something like yeah. that. But to your earlier point about why you would want to be motivated to be civil in your organization, this is one of the winningest guys. You know, he's one of the most winningest coaches in American history. And so civility equals winning in my mind, you know, the way he cares about his players and wants to make sure that they graduate and creates these norms that you described. And these are all high ego kinds of people that he was dealing with in the Olympics. You know, these are all the very best college players from across the country. And yet he has them sitting in a room saying, you know, how are we going to behave and aligned to your presentation and your TED talk and to what he said, which is, who do you want to be? That's a very powerful question. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be seen? You know, that's really great. Yeah, thanks. I am into sports and like you, a huge fan of Coach K and his books. And Coach Wooden is another person that I point to a lot just for having done a lot of the things that we would recommend to leaders nowadays. Like for him in particular, just how much attention he gave to character as far as in recruiting and selecting people into his team. He actually surveyed people, you know, if he was going after a player, considering recruiting a player, you know, surveying current coach, opposing coaches opposing players, principal, pastor, things like that, because he recognized that it wasn't worth the cost of bringing a bad apple in, (laughs) that he thought it would spoil the barrel. And I just thought, you know, decades ago, you know, he was kind of ahead of our time and certainly applying this stuff to a different setting, but we'd be wise to follow some of those ideas. And And I think, you know, to your point, also the leadership style that you mentioned with Coach K, you know, I think we've seen some other coaches coming up through the ranks that have done incredibly well, like the Steve Kerrs and the Brad Stevens and others with kind of a similar mentality and maybe coaching philosophy. Yeah, you're ringing all the bells for me, Christine, because (laughs) one of my dream guests, I actually have not had the courage to ask him and it's beginning of the season, so I'll have to wait a little while. But my idol for the last probably six or seven years is Jay Wright at Villanova. So this is a team that's won the national championship NCAA tournament two years out of the last three, which is incredible for a relatively small school. I think they've got like 10,000 students there. So this isn't, you know, an enormous school. But Wall Street Journal at the time they won the championship three years ago, did an analysis and they said, let's take the 65 teams in the NCAA tournament and let's see how well they did in graduating their students. And so in other words, it was a tournament of ranking them according to their graduation rates. And not only did Villanova win the sporting event, the NCAA championship, but they also ranked number one in graduation. So it was 100%. Every one of the players graduated. So that just shows you a whole different attitude about what coaching is about to people like this. And, And I think this is what the model has to be in business, too. I think these are the people that truly win. Yeah. And I I encourage you to have him as a guest reach out because it reminds me that Jay Billis actually said that, you know, he believes they have the best culture in basketball. And I think he may have even said in sports, college sports, you know, that obviously he's created a really uh, 
unique and phenomenal culture there. And it would be interesting to learn more about what goes into that recipe for creating something and and sustaining it. Because certainly, as you mentioned, over the last decade or so, they've been thriving and their players have. And so it's been great. I think it's remarkable, all these coaches, that they only get to work with talent for pretty much two or three years before they're either taken in the NBA or they're graduating, right? So you're just meeting new people, building that ethos, coaching them into success, and then saying goodbye to them. And we don't have that in business quite as much, obviously, 25% annualized turnover. So to be able to do that over and over, I think, is a great model. So I will take you at your encouragement, <laughs> and I will we'll reach out to Jay Wright. Uh-huh. So one of the great points, another great point you made in your TED Talk, and we kind of touched on this at the beginning, is that we kind of have this perverse belief that being a nice guy in leadership is a fool's game. And it's pretty hard to argue that There are some jerks really in our society that are winning today in all aspects. I mean, there's some jerky behavior in business that we all see. There's certainly jerky behavior in in government. So convince us just one more time that civility really wins. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's always going to be some outliers. So as you pointed out, we see that, you know, whether it's in business, certainly in politics, in the media and in sports, you know, so there's no denying that. I think that will always be the case. Some people that are exceptional performers, despite their incivility. And so I think we focus on, well, what do we know from the the research? And so, you know, we talked about earlier, but the research that studied for decades, why some people fall off off the success trail or the fast track, the number one and three reasons being related to their style and, you know, their rude or uncivil or bullying brace of style, I think is compelling. The other thing, speaking from my own research, what we found in various studies where we survey like a a social network, so people and who they work with, what we find is that people that are perceived as leaders are twice as likely to be seen as leaders, and they're perceived as civil, twice as likely to be perceived as leaders, and they're 13% better performers rated objectively. People are much more likely to share and to seek information from them. But what's been interesting to me is that we've found those similar findings, you know, where people outperform others that are seen as civil and are much more likely to be seen as leaders in various samples, like MBA samples here, MBA samples abroad, very diverse groups, consulting firms, biotech firms, things like that. So, at least what we're finding now, and most recently I shared that, you know, we're looking specifically at power. Like, are people seen as more powerful if they're uncivil? And, you know, we're finding both in the field and then in experiments, no, they're not. I mean, um, they may have positions of power, but I think that they're losing followership or influence by behaving that way, not gaining it. And so that's what I would focus on. You know, there will always be a Steve Jobs or, you know, someone that is able to act that way and be brilliant and get away with it. But I think for most people, one, we're not them. And two, it's not a path forward for most of us that I would advocate for. That's uh, a great line. It's not a path I would advocate for most of us. I, buyer beware. Yeah. So, but what I'm really hearing is that you believe civility is ascendant. Yeah. That's very I do. encouraging. Yeah. 
I do. And I think we'll continue to find that. I mean, I think that that's a trend. You know, I think as much incivility as we see nowadays, I think it really bothers people. And, you know, even if you just witness it, like some of the studies I did with marketing professors at USC and what we found is similar to what Danny Meyer advocates in his uh, Setting the Table book, which is if a chef's rude once, he warns them. If a chef's rude twice, he fires them. And people say, how can you do that? Like, that's your talent. You know, he owns 27 really successful restaurants in New York City. And he said, because customers can taste it. And that's what we find. I mean, if you're around it, you judge harshly because of it, particularly as customers. And you're far less loyal to the place. So we judge very quickly. I love his language, obviously, relating to food, tasting it. But I think we also feel it. You know, I I had to deal with my credit card company the other day. And when I got off the phone, and I'll just give them the plug bell, it's Capital One. Every time I ever deal with them, I just have the direct experience of knowing intuitively that these people are trained well, cared about. It's conversational. It's, hey, how are you doing, Mark? You know, yeah, we'll get to this. We'll solve it. Don't worry. You know, whatever. But it's a kindness. It's a caring that, you know, if it's not coming through in the leadership, if the leaders aren't treating them this way, there's no way I would feel that. And so I think that's really fantastic. I want to transition us. Christine, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation and ask our guests a few questions about them a little bit more personally. Your interest, influences, philosophy, you'll see in a second. So with your permission, I'd like to ask you some of these questions in what we call the heartbeat round. And your goal is to give us your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat. So are you ready? Okay, sure. All right, cool. <laughs> best life lesson your mother taught you? Care for others. Best life lesson your father taught you? Uh, Give your best and don't get outworked. A well-known CEO who is a master of civility. Doug Conant. One book you wish everyone in the world would read. Rhythm of Life by Matthew Kelly. Best money you ever spent. On my house. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) If you could witness one event of the past, present, or future, what would it be? I think it'd be future if we can achieve world peace. Not world civility? Well, that would be great, too. <laughs> that would probably be along the way, though. So, yeah, I wasn't okay. sure if you wanted any civility answers. No, I'm so I was kidding. Trying I'm to, kidding. Yeah. Besides love and civility, what does the world need more of? I think peace. World leader of any era that you most admire. Uh, well, now I'd say Pope Francis. I've written about him. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Insensitive, abrasive, or bullying style. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Uh, radiating a positive spirit or light. <laughs> yeah, you're having a great difficulty with that in this whole <laughs> I, podcast. It's not coming through. Uh, it's a work <laughs> in progress, I can assure you. You're doing well, I'll say that. The trait you admire most in other people? I think treating people well and this idea of radiating a positive spirit or light. And the quote that captures your life philosophy? Well, it's actually a short Irish poem. So it's uh, take time to work. It's the price of success. Take time to meditate. It's the source of power. Take time to play. It's the secret of perpetual youth. Take time to read. It's the way of knowledge. Take time to be friendly. It's the road to happiness. Take time to laugh. It's the music of the soul. And take time to love and be loved. Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. That was great. So I'm glad we did that with you. Thank you. Before we go here, I have, I have I actually have a couple of quick questions here. And one is that 
early in your TED talk, you mentioned visiting your father in the hospital when you were, I'm assuming, a young girl, high school perhaps. And you said he was strapped with electrodes and no longer, this is your words, the strong athletic person you knew. And you said his illness was the result of working for an uncivil boss. So I know that you study workplace stress and the toll it's taking on so many people. So I'm wondering if you could sort of comment on this experience and how did you make the association that your dad was in the hospital because of, you know, what you described as a toxic boss? Yeah, I mean, he tried to hide it from us. I'm the oldest of four. And when this happened, I actually was home from college over the summer. And we got a call. He had been rushed from work. He was on a sales call to the hospital in an ambulance. And we showed up there. And, you know, I just vividly recall walking into the hospital room and seeing, you know, him, as you described, with the electrode strapped to his bare chest. And, you know, he had always been a very, you know, strong, athletic, vivacious guy, coached me in different different sports growing up, my brothers and sisters and I, and would have never expected to see him like that. And I could tell, you know, when he looked at me that he was embarrassed, you know, like he obviously did not want us to see him that way. And although he hid the particulars, like we really didn't talk about the specifics for about 10 years, you know, where I learned of the stories and the, you know, toxic bosses and so forth. I knew about the bosses, but didn't know this kind of the situations that he had encountered and that he found himself sticking up for others. And that's really when it all kind of went down. He took a risk in reporting it. Again, we didn't talk about it at the time, but what I realized was mainly after I had a toxic workplace experience, at the time I thought my dad was an outlier. Like he was just an unlucky soul. He happened to work in a really bad work environment. He happened to have two really terrible bosses over the course of a decade. But that didn't happen to many people at all, you know. And then when I went into my own work experience, I saw so many people that experienced this and that witnessed this. And I just thought, I can't believe, granted, I'm naive, but I can't believe that people treat each other this way at work. And it's costing people and organizations a lot. And I think it was maybe my economics undergrad degree that I realized, okay, well, you know, you can make a moral argument around why this shouldn't happen and why people should treat each other right and so forth. But I think it would be much more persuasive to try to show what are the effects on the bottom line and why should leaders and organizations treat each other better and create these better cultures where I believe both individuals and organizations can thrive. And so that's really kind of what set me on my path. And, you know, again, I I don't think I recognized at the time how much it hit me or um, along the way, maybe what I was taking in, (laughs) but clearly thought a lot about it after the fact. And I think when you see someone strong kind of suffer and see the consequences, you realize, wow, like, you know, what if they didn't go into the situation like that? What would it do to them? And, you know, since then, I've learned how workplace stress just really chips away at people in ways that are pretty scary because people don't necessarily realize it. Well, I wanted to call it out because, you know, you embedded this in your answer that 
the work that you do is data driven. Yeah. It's research. It's here. You know, look at these numbers, look at what we discovered. And so it's unfortunate, I think, that we're using data to prove to managers that incivility negatively affects their bottom line. But we're not really talking about the negative impacts on human beings. You know, here's your dad suffering from, did he have a heart attack? I mean, what were the reasons? Yeah, he did. And he recovered, you know, fortunately and everything, thank God. So, yes, I mean, it definitely, you know, like I said, I mean, if I knew that if it affected people like him, you know, it could definitely take others down too. And once I got into, you know, my own workplace experience, I realized just how many people it touches, that he wasn't really an outlier in so many ways. And I think, you know, you pointed to what the costs of this are. I mean, Jeff Pfeffer has a great book out that now, you know, documents. Your job is killing you? Yeah, that documents this really convincingly. So that would be a great resource for people that care about workplace stress and just, you know, workplace cultures more generally. Well, thank you for that. Usually, I like to kind of end this discussion with any parting thoughts. And so if you want to throw that into this, I actually have a very different question for you. Sure. And, you know, managers, people listening into this, we have, you know, people at all levels of organizations, but principally all in management leadership positions. And inevitably, they're going to have to give a speech. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, when I was watching your TED Talk, I thought, I want to ask her, how did she prepare? Because you're giving, you know, you're standing up in the live audience. I don't think you had notes or you may have had a floor monitor, but nevertheless, no. you're doing a 15-minute speech. So you have to write it, memorize it, and then prepare it. What were the steps that you took? I think that it would help everyone to know if I ever have to give a speech, I'd like to emulate this because you did a fantastic job. It's almost a million views. That speaks to it. Well, thank you very much. First of all, you know, I think one of the first and primary, you know, the thing that you need to really work on is honing in on your message. You know, in one sentence, what do you want people to get out of it? <laughs> you know, what's your message? And then the shorter the talk, the more that you need to work on it. Literally, you know, including only the most important pieces that support the story you want to tell. And I think one of the things to really consider as you do that is to balance stories with data. So, because some people respond much more emotionally <laughs> to stories, others may respond much more to the analytics. You know, what's the research behind it? And so I think that, at least in my case, I really wanted to balance that. And I think then you want to practice, practice, practice and get feedback from different types of people. You know, my brother has a company called The Mighty and I think it was the day after Christmas, I actually went in and, you know, it was very rough at that time, but tried to give it and got great feedback from a few people that, you know, just happened to be there and then took it to some of my MBAs or a TA and, you know, just tried to get feedback from different types of people. Um, and it, it would surprise me, you know, with how people would pick up or hone in on one word that they didn't like or <laughs> they didn't want, and then you revise. But I think that there's some great, helpful resources out there. I mean, I, I really love Chris Anderson's book mm -hmm. on TED Talks. I think that that's a great resource for anyone giving a speech. Certainly, the TED Talk is unique. And so I do think that, like, for example, again, getting really clear on your message and then kind of having an outline around that. And then you have to cut, cut, cut. 
as someone famously said, you know, you have to prepare a lot more for a shorter talk <laughs> than you would a longer one. Um, I think it was Winston Churchill, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I knew I couldn't peg the quote exactly, but I, I think that's so true. But it's also, I think, if you could look at it as kind of a journey and fun, it's kind of a, a great skill to practice. Well, wonderful advice. And all of the insight that you shared has just been really fantastic. I'm honored that you joined us for the podcast and I wish you great success. I'll keep an eye on the hitting the 1 million number with your TED Talk. <laughs> on behalf of everyone listening and Christine, thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Best to you. You too. Before we sign off, I'm thrilled to announce that after just 16 episodes, our podcast has now been heard in 91 countries around the world. Our audience includes listeners in North America and Europe, but also in countries like Kenya, Vietnam, Egypt, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Israel, Japan, and so many others. And as we so much want to continue to grow this, I thank you in advance for introducing our show to your fellow colleagues and friends and family. And I'll say it again, thank you very much for doing that. And I also invite you to subscribe personally to the podcast so you receive all the episodes directly. And as always, I want to thank my wonderful Seattle, Washington-based team, producer and sound engineer Eric Oz, webmaster Randy Yant, and a person who continues to support me in immeasurable ways, Mr. Ken Boynton. And I leave you, as always, with the same reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 